Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Last week, Joel and I looked at the Christian story, but told through a sophistic lens. The point was to see how such a telling has perhaps all the right information, but has a corrupt framework that distorts the meaning of the terms. Today, Joel and I talk about what the Christian story would look like if we were to understand God as being manifest most clearly in the self-giving life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. While it might seem elementary, it seems that we usually look at Jesus through the lens of sophistry rather than letting Jesus undermine our tendency to be sophists. So in this episode, we say a few things about how Jesus and the doctrine of creation ex nihilo shows sophist metaphysics and theology to be erroneous. And we give a retelling of the Christian story somewhat clumsily and with a few questions unanswered but all of this in light of Jesus. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Check out tacticalfaith.com for information, blogs, ways to contact us and support us. And if you have questions, comments, or complaints that you'd like to direct to me and Joel, especially Joel, email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com or tweet us at wonderingwisdom. And both of those, wondering at tacticalfaith.com and at wonderingwisdom, uh, there's an underscore where the A or the O would be in wondering. Enjoy. Last time on Wondering Toward Wisdom, we laid out what Christianity looks like through a sophistic lens, what 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 God looks like through a sophistic lens, uh, what the story of Christianity, of creation, uh, redemption, salvation, all of that, what that looks like. And frankly, if you didn't listen, it doesn't look very good. Um, God seems to be a bit of a sociopath. We seem to be pawns in his schemes, and he wants something from us, and he's going to make sure he gets it. And if he doesn't get it, well, we're going to burn in hell for it. It's, it's ugly. It's really ugly. What we're concerned about is that that seems to actually fit with a lot of the way that a lot of Christians interpret Christianity or think about Christianity. Um, and, and, and we talked about how it's a sin problem. It, it's not that someone is nefarious and out to get us well, uh, apart from Satan um, and, and the demons, but not that there's any human that's, that's, you know, behind the scenes being like, oh, if I can get people to think of Christianity this way, we can manipulate them and control them and do these kinds. No, no, it's, it's, it's more, than, more uh, than not a sin problem. And because when, you know, sin wants to control and destroy, which is what the sophistic God and the sophistic view of the world does as well. So today we're going to turn the tables and say, if we start with Jesus, if Jesus is our hermeneutic of, for understanding God, if we take John 1.18 seriously, where it says, no one has seen God until Jesus showed up, basically. And we, yes, God interacted with Moses and Elijah and other people in the Old Testament. But what that verse is telling us is compared to what it was like when Jesus shows up, in Hebrews, in, you know, Jesus is the exact representation of the being of God. That is going to give us a much clearer picture than anything in, in before that will give us. And we should use Jesus as as a, a lens instead of the sophistic sophistic view of God. Use the Jesus God 
as our lens through which we understand Christianity and the world. And what what does that look like? That's what we're going to lay out for you guys today. Yeah, and I, again, I, I want to reiterate that we're very we've been pretty critical. I've I've been pretty critical, but this is this criticism of the way Christians view Christianity in terms of a sophisticated lens is not me condemning. It's it's me almost like pleading for us to try to try to stop seeing things in this way because I've seen it this way. I still this is sort of my default. If if I'm not actively reflecting on Christ, I tend to just start seeing God in this way. And so it's almost like you you I'll leave it at that. So well, I, I mean, I I think C.S. Lewis talks about how, you know, we how you know these wild horses become domesticated horses when we're meant to be winged horses, and and but when you become domesticated, you become kind of satisfied where where you're at, and you lose sight of what you're supposed to be. And what Travis and I are are really saying is, for we know for ourselves when we moved to seeing the story of Christianity, seeing the world, seeing God through this Jesus lens, it moved us beyond where we were. And so our criticism isn't, oh, you're terrible. It's, we want more for you. We we have experienced this and we want this for you too. So our criticism isn't, you're bad people. It's, we want more for you. And it's not because we're great. It's because we're sort of standing alongside you and we want more for us as well. Uh, might be, might, might be, whatever. because my, my, again, once yeah. I, once I relax, I fall back into this. And so there's almost a sense in which it's, it's sort of like, I need like at least weekly gatherings with fellow believers where I reflect on Christ's nature. But I, I don't, if we had something like that, it would help. And, so, and, and, and maybe participate in his, you know, in, in his body and blood. Yeah, having Eucharist, you should have Eucharist at every worship service. If you don't, I pity you. So uh, <laughs> that's a little rough, but anyway. So, um, so let, let's go back. I tried to talk about two salient features of the Euthyphro view of the gods that that really stand out, or a sophistic view of the gods that really stand out that Socrates battled against. And that I think Christianity battles against. The first is that God is a being that desires to gain and possess more for himself. And the second is that, therefore, all of God's actions, all of them from creation to establishing moral order to moral order to redemption and everything, are done merely to feed the, his feed God's desire for more. That is God's pleonexia. That's the sophistic God. And if you tell the story of Christianity in light of that, God sounds pretty good. Gross, and the only justification you can really offer for God doing what God does is power. Might makes right. That's what you're left with. And by the way, if you hold a might makes right view, you fall into Euthyphro dilemma, and everything is crazy and and so forth. But what if you let that go? First of all. If we let that go, it seems like we're letting go of God's ability to control things. This is why I think people might, this is probably the main reason why people might hesitate to accept what we're saying. They're going to, they're thinking we're going all open theist and whatever. Now, depending on your, you know, I don't want to get into debate about open theism because that's not the issue at play here. The issue at play here is, 
what do you view control? So John 10, 10, famous verse, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have a problem with you viewing God as that thief. I don't think God has come to steal, kill, and destroy. I think God has come that we, I think Christ came that we may have life. And I happen to think that Jesus is the best representation of God because the Bible says so. And I believe the Bible. Okay. So that's where we're going. Now, what you can, I don't care what you, what your theology is here. That's not the issue. But the point is, if your view of control is only that you're capable of steal, stealing, killing, and destroying, if that's your view of what it means for God to have power, you have a problem, right? And the, you have the same problem I've had most of my Christian life. Okay. So, so what does it mean to look at God as creator, truly creator ex nihilo? What does it mean to look at God through the lens of Jesus? Well, we've talked about these. So, uh, the, again, the two main points of sophistry, God is a being that desires to gain more for himself and everything that God does is therefore for the purpose of gaining more for himself. We've already talked about in the last episode, we talked about why that, that first, why God as creator doesn't even make it. If God is creating ex nihilo, it doesn't make sense that he's making more for himself because he's creating out of nothing, which means everything that comes is an overflowing of his own, of, of himself. I'm not saying we're a part of God, right? I'm not, this isn't some pantheism or panentheism. I'm saying that God, that there's nothing that we could add to God, which I think everyone agree with that. So therefore God can want nothing from us. I mean, that seems to be built right into the, to the beginning. Uh, therefore God's actions can't be for the sake of just getting more for himself because that doesn't make any sense. So what is God doing? And what does it mean that God is a jealous God or God desires that we glorify him? What could that possibly mean? Well, maybe we can look really quickly through the view of through the story of Christianity. And Joel's going to have to help me out here a little bit because I don't have this fully thought out because it starts to get hard to talk about. What does it mean to look at the story of Christianity, the story of redemption, God's work in the fall, redemption, and everything through the lens of of God as a not sophist God. And and let, let's just try and give some rough rough boundaries on this real quick. You know, if the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, then the one who is the opposite of the thief is one who comes to give, to bring life, and to enhance. Or create. Well, that's, that's the creative life, yeah. the life part. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. I mean, it seems like God is the opposite of the thief, right? So, uh, and it and the thief is the sophistic God. So maybe that's a good image to hold in your mind. The sophistic God is the thief who just happens to be powerful enough that that if you at least if you help him steal, kill, and destroy, then you get a part in his kingdom. But that's not how God functions. Unfortunately, I think our might makes right view makes God into a thief, but he just happens to have big enough guns that he also runs the government, which sounds sounds like that's happened before. We talked about the sophist view of the story of Christianity. What would it look like for us to, uh, to tell the story in a way that looks through the lens of Jesus or through the lens of creation? Let's retell the story. Uh so the first thing that we see is that God gives life out of his own abundance. He creates out of his own abundance, abundance that leads 
to service, as we see in Jesus, even to one's enemies, and bears up under suffering, even unjust suffering, even for the sake of one's enemies, out of that overflowing abundance and the self-giving which brought the world into being overcomes even death. For death is the power to undo creation, but the power of creation is greater than the power of destruction. Right? Does that seem like a, that's a, I think that's a good anti-sophistic view. Okay. So God did not create out of need or desire to get more for himself. Then why would a God have created? Well, he created out of abundance and a desire to give of himself. So he and, creates. And, and, and if you look at Adam and Eve, he created them not just to sit around and do nothing all day, but they, their job was to, was uh, to, to have dominion over creation, which, which isn't a sitting and ruling, but it's an, a, an enhancing that their job was to take the garden and help it to grow and to expand and to, to, to become greater than it already was. Yes. Out of human. And we know, we see this in some human endeavors. We have the capacity to bring out of, out of our self-giving abundance to the world around us. Uh, And that's what, that's what God does. And at our best, that's what we are capable of doing. So, God gives of himself. He makes humans in his image to reflect the glory of self-giving. Humans decide to be self-taking. They reach out and try to grasp by their own power and knowledge equality with God. There's a little Genesis 3 and a little Philippians 2 going on there. They begin to possess and consume, reflected in the curse on the land and relationships, and it's made clearest in the killing of one brother by another. And, of course, the violent, overabundant vengeance of Lamech. Right, this is all Genesis 4 then. So God becomes angry. Now, what is his anger? Is it a selfish anger because he's not getting his way? Yes and no. It depends on what you mean by getting his way. <laughs> God is angry because his create he's angry for his creation because it battles against its own nature, like a child throwing a tantrum because they they have to eat something that's healthy. Or a child throwing a tantrum because they can't they can't run out and play in, in on the interstate. Right. And so it, it, it sometimes I, this is just me inserting my uh, mildly heretical thoughts, but sometimes I wish that, that the Bible had used multiple words instead of just anger, you know, like, it, cause it seems like sorrowful might better capture what is intended uh, by that, by the anger that it, that w- when we talk about anger, we we have this sense of self righteousness that we attach to anger, that isn't what God has in what I what it seems like God has in mind when He was angry. It, it, it's it's a it's more of a compassion and sorrow that someone he that these people he loves so deeply are destroying themselves. It's sort of like if somebody were to approach the people who are rebelling against him and said. Oh, uh, city, city, if only you knew what could bring you peace and how I wish I could gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, right? Yeah. I think that might've happened at some point, but yeah. yeah, the, yeah. Uh, Jesus said that to Jerusalem in yeah, case. Sorry. You're... I'm, I'm being, yeah, I'm being, I'm not that. Dumb. Well, I knew that at least. So 
Uh, but but yeah, I I think I think that our problem is that we interpret anger very much in terms of a sophistic sense of I didn't get my way, and so now I'm I need to hurt someone. That's almost invariably what our anger is. Almost, I, in my, we had a we had a discussion about this a long time ago about when we went through the seven deadly sins, which you should go back and listen to, because uh, we're very good with the seven deadly sins. We've done all of them. <laughs> so, God, God has wrath, but His wrath is not like our wrath, and uh, at least I, I, that seems reasonable to say. It's not this. Let's put it this way: If God's wrath is like our wrath, then it's like I didn't get my way, so I'm throwing a fit. Do we see that in Jesus? The one possible ex- exception, you know, well, we would say no, you know, except when he curses the fig tree. That seems like that might be the the one that. Yeah, but listen to the Bible podcast yes, story yes. on the fig tree. It's really good and it, it'll totally, it'll totally transform your interpretation of it. So, that's so not on, what's on happening the, there. On the surface, it might look like that's what's happening. Some people also want to say that the uh, the driving out of the the um, money changers in the temple is an example, but there's more going on there than than just that as well. Yeah, yeah, I would encourage you to really reflect on those. The, the fig tree one always caught me off guard. Is like, man, Jesus seems quite, sort of petulant, but that's not that's not at all what's happening with the fig tree. The, the story of the fig tree is really interesting, uh, and I would encourage you to go go. Uh, anyway, and we'll, uh, we'll even try and put a link in in the in the show notes because we think it's that good. Yeah, it's it's to 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 understand what's going on with the story of the fig tree. It's beautiful. Anyway, so uh, I mean, it's sad but beautiful. So, um, God, okay, so so God has this wrath, but His wrath is built upon the idea that things are failing to live in accordance with what they're meant to be. And again, it's kind of like a child throwing a tantrum. And everything that we're doing, he, God keeps giving us direction, keeps say, keeps acting to save, and then saying, "Listen, this is what my this is what my kingdom is like." We might say, "My people, this is what my kingdom is like." Um, and, and he says, and he create he even creates a people, and tries to create a nation that can serve as priests to the whole world. Not not a conquering nation that goes out and beats up all the nations, but but becomes a place where there's peace and wisdom and love and and a justice, a, ju- a merciful justice that is far beyond anything in the world. But those people never do that. They keep making, I think the phrase, I forget exactly where, but the phrase is we've made a treaty with death, which is exactly right. What they meant by that, by the way, is we've made a treaty with a powerful nation. But they made a treaty with death. We now have an alliance with death itself, which is exactly right. The power of death, you make an alliance with it. The one who lives by death will die by death. Isn't There's a movie called Murder by Death, I think, an old one, which is seems sort of... I think so. But the point is, the one who lives by the sword will die by the sword. The power of the sword leads to the power of the sword. God's power is not the power of the sword. It's something else. Uh, the power of the sword is the power to steal, kill, and destroy. God's power is the power of creation, which is far more powerful than the power of destruction. Otherwise, God never could have created. So people are trapped. We're incapable of even recognizing what God is getting at. That is, we're sort of trapped by the, we're blinded by the power of death. Why? Because the whole world functions this way, right? The power to destroy, uh, 
we're trapped by the power, the desire to have the power to destroy so that we might consume, so that we can get more. And then even when God acts, we see him in light of that. And so we see God as nothing other than a tribal God, no different than me, just more powerful. And so we try to use God. And when God doesn't work out for us, doesn't serve my purposes, I'll put my trust in something else. In fact, what I'll probably do is put my trust partly in God and partly in other things. So let's say I'll, you know, the, the I think, wrong interpretation of what Jesus meant when he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. The idea is that, well, part of my life is devoted to this. I put my trust in this for part of my life, but I'll put trust in God for other parts of my life. So my spiritual life I'll put my trust in God, but for my all the everything else, I'm putting my trust in whatever else. That's not really how it's supposed to work. That's It can kind of look like it's supposed to sort of work like that, but that's not really how it's supposed to work. We're, we're enamored with the power of death. And so we try to use God when God doesn't work out for our purposes. We put our trust in other things, that is God, other gods, the power of money, the power of weapons, so on and so forth. There still remain small islands of love and self-giving, obviously primarily found in family and the rare deep friendship that takes place. But uh, overall, it is not love and self-giving that runs the world. It's the power of death that runs the world. And it is the ability to run the world in that way to which we have committed ourselves. So God's wrath is a kind of, his wrath is a kind of suffering over the world that is squandering its opportunity to take part in the abundance of God's life. Let me repeat that. God's wrath is a kind of suffering over the fact that the world is squandering its opportunity to take part in the abundance of God's own life. His wrath is kindled against this power of death. He sent Jesus to fall into the hands of death and by the abundance of that self-giving love that created the world, overcome death. Uh, Another way you can think of it is God's wrath is letting us destroy ourselves to an to an to an effect. When 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 God demonstrates His wrath, He's not smiting us as much as He's weeping as He sees us destroying ourselves and letting us suffer the consequences of our own of of our own poor decisions. Yeah, but yet He but yet He loves us enough. That he's going to try. That he's going to find a way to redeem us from the effects of those destructive consequences. Right. And the wages of sin. What, what people don't seem to realize is the wages of sin is death. That means sin and death are tied together. It's not like the the sophistic view is we're living our own lives. God calls that sin because he doesn't like us, and so he adds a punishment to it that is not organically tied to it. But no, sin and death are the same thing. Like. Yes. There's just sinning is a small amount of committing death upon yourself. So, so it's not like God, I mean, God, I don't know if God sometimes, you know, speeds up the process or, you know, greases it or, or supports your choice to die, you know, or whatever. But I mean, sin is the pursuit of death. God doesn't have to kill you. You're doing it yourself. And so this idea, uh, the view that 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 the punishment is 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 a thing that's added on that is not tied to the sin itself is a confusion. 
Sin is opposing God. God is the one who is self-giving creator. If you oppose self-giving creator, what do you have? The thief. The self-taking, self-destroying. The thief. And what do you have? I mean, anyway, you're just left with tearing each other apart and killing yourself. And so sin and death are, the wages of sin is death is, it's sort of like the result of picking corn is you have corn. Right. The wages of picking corn is corn. The wages of sin is death. You're picking death. You're going to end up with a harvest of death. You sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind, right? So his wrath is kindled against the power of death. And and I, again, I'm not going to talk about, I don't know how to talk about a lot of these details because there's a lot of intricacies we can get into, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave this as it is. So he sent Jesus to fall in the hands of death. It's overcome by the, by the overabundant self-giving love that created the world. And now this is offered to all of us. We can remain trapped in allegiance to death, which by the way, has in fact lost its grip on the world. You know how I can see that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Amen. Which means the power of death is broken. Now we're all still dying, right? But it doesn't change the fact that the Lord of life is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He overcame death. He is Lord. Therefore, death is losing its power. It, it It's like the... It's like the world hasn't gotten the memo that the battle or that the war is over. And so right. there were, and so, you know, death is still exercising the diminishing power where it can, but its power has been dismantled. The source of its power has been dismantled and there is the day is coming when death will be no more. Right. But the issue is even the church, which is the harbinger of the kingdom of heaven, the harbinger of self-giving abundance has surrendered in many respects. Many of us have surrendered partly because we can't see any other way to the pursuit of power in the way that the world does things. And we justify this by looking at God and seeing God as a sophistic God. We're very much like Euthyphro. We see the pursuit of gain, the pursuit of gain for myself as fine. Uh, and th- because God's that way anyway, as long as I worship God and I do the right thing, right. It, and we get complicated. We suddenly find that we're not even talking about Christianity anymore. we're talking about something else because we keep looking at personal gain, personal gain, personal gain. Everything's about personal gain, personal gain. We present the gospel as personal gain. Look, if you, if you say the magic words, you believe in Jesus, you get to go to heaven. What about the, what about the take up your cross and follow me? Cause Jesus didn't say, Hey, all you got to do is say some stay, you know, go through the four spiritual laws and then you get everything. He said, if you follow me, you will give everything. And in yeah. so doing, you will gain far more than you could possibly imagine, but you can seek to gain the whole world, but your then soul. you're going to lose everything. You'll lose far more than you can possibly imagine. Do you see what's going on here? Like Jesus's message is you will get everything because when you give everything, that is the power that made everything. Does that make sense? So it sounds like I'm just saying everything over and over again. Well, I I, I mean, you know, you look at Paul and uh, he, you know, he said, you know, when I was with you, I resolved to know nothing but Christ crucified because he, he knew if, if he kept his focus on Jesus self-giving love demonstrated most clearly on the cross that everything else 
would make that everything else would make sense. Everything else would fall into line, into line, provided the focus was on that, on the the truest picture of God, right, and not the conquering Messiah who comes and beats down his enemies by raising up an army and killing the Romans, but a conquering Messiah who overcomes death itself. Not one that wields death, but one that overcomes death. And so, uh, what if we remain entranced by the power of death, which seems to be running the world and giving us all the worldly things that we think we desire? Then we will not belong in the kingdom of God. We will be separated from the self-giving abundance of God, and we'll suffer whatever it is to be trapped in a world of selfish consumption. That is, always consuming and never being filled. And, and it's very plausible to say that it's not that God sends us to that world, but it's the world that we inhabit ourselves. And so we we can't receive what God wants to give us because we we are so self-focused that we are unable to to receive because we are unable to give. Right. The, the, uh, is it was it Lewis that said that hell was locked from the inside, gates of hell yeah. were locked from the inside? Yeah. And I know that Lewis gets a little bit weird in a lot of people's interpretation, but I think there's something like that. We in, we make hell in uh, it, something like that. I mean, let's, I don't want to, I'm not even, I'm speaking very sloppily here, but uh, you, I mean, there's something about Sartre's No Exit that kind of fits here, right? Hell is other people. And if you read his no exit, and I know it gets a little bit weird with the sexual relationships and so forth, but bear with me here. It's within the context of his worldview, it was possible for them to create a paradise, but because they were turned in on themselves, they made a hell. They had all that was required to make a good world. Now, of course, it would have involved some relationships that we consider that, that, but but they're problematic. Yeah, obviously. But nevertheless, the, 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 the message of the story seems correct in this. If we could give of ourselves, we can make, we can make a place of wonder. But once we turn on for gaining ourselves, we bring the worldly desire to control, to steal, kill and destroy into the kingdom. And now we no longer belong in the kingdom. You might look at it as something like, Acts 2, Acts 4, the, what was going on there, and then Ananias and Sapphira come, and they try to gain something for themselves by giving charity, by lying about it. They didn't belong, and the Spirit made sure they weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, I don't know if I should laugh about that. So, if you look at the second version of the story, which we spent a lot of time saying, it contains basically all the same facts as the first story. It uses some of the same words, wrath and all this kind of stuff, but it is interpreted in light of the character of God as revealed in Jesus and in revealed in God as creating ex nihilo and in fact all of scripture rather than a sophistic view of God. So we've now come to understand love, wrath, moral law, which we didn't talk much about except that moral law is really what is the way for you to live such that you become fully who you were meant to be, that is, have abundant life. We've understood that in non-sophistic terms. But we don't normally understand things that way. Uh, and one last thing with regard to this. If you're cl paying close attention, you'll notice, and I said this a few times though, you'll notice that seeing God in, so in sophist terms is to see him in through the lens of sin. 
Interpreting the perfectly good God through a lens corrupted by sin is to see him incorrectly. In fact, it's to almost to willfully see him incorrectly. So the first story that we told, the sophist view of God on the previous podcast, that's how we tend to think of God because we are sinful creatures and sin corrupts our, our even our intellect. I would say it corrupts our evaluative outlook. It is a, a fundamentally flawed evaluative outlook. Uh, you got to go back to previous podcasts to understand what we're talking about with that. But this is why it's a default mode. It's so easy to fall back into that, that craving after power, the craving after the power of death. But to worship Jesus is to see God, to worship and to focus on Christ crucified is to see God as God really is. Which means goodness is essential to God's nature. Self-giving abundance is essential to God's nature. And this, by the way, this is just a quick aside, but it should have, maybe should have been the whole thing. This is why goodness, morality, piety, all arises directly from God's nature. How do we know what is good? The self-giving that brings life is the good. That's yes. God's very nature. We see it in creation. We see it in Jesus. Amen. That's all the use of dilemma by the way. Amen. But that's it. Uh, hopefully this has been somewhat clarifying on the idea of why I think, why I think the platonic competition against sophistry is perhaps the perennial human issue. Do we see things as sophists see it or do we see it as Plato sees it? Or to put it another way, I know this sounds a little tricky and maybe heretical. Do we see it as sinners as empire power people, or do we see it as followers of Jesus? And that's that's a huge thing that may that we we should get into here about how do we fundamentally define ourselves as persons? Do we define ourselves as sinners saved by grace, or do we define ourselves as humans created in the image of God? Yeah, the dignity this, that comes from that. This is. And this gets us into some iffy territory because I think even the ideas of grace and sin and all this other kind of stuff have been misused, not because the terms are wrong and not because they're not refer not because they're referring to something that's not true, but because we've interpreted them in light of in a sophistic way, sophistic way, instead of in terms of a biblical Christ centered way. So what are, are we fundamentally evil? No, we're not fundamentally evil. We're fundamentally good. I read it in my Bible. It says it right there in Genesis 1, right at the beginning. We're fundamentally very good. Made in God's image, made in God's image, reflecting his glory. But there's something broken about us. Something broken that we can't seem to get out of. We, we're trapped by the power of death. This is all... Basic Christianity, Christianity 101, but there's a difference in, in the way that we understand it uh, when you understand it in terms of sophistry, because I, again, and I could go through story after story of talking to people who have talked about how well, I'm a sinner, I'm just a sinner, and everything I do is filthy rags and blah, 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 blah. And this was this kind of speaking, which seems to be appropriate theology. It has all the right words, all the right systematized theology, perhaps, was was holding them in there being trapped by sin. Right? This is what we think of ourselves when we've lost the 
I would say even lost the desire for virtue, lost the desire to become more than what we are. It's almost like an ex- it's like a it's like a an excuse in a sea of despair. I am a sinner saved by grace can be a call of despair, or it could be something else. But in that context, sinner means there's something broken about me, but I'm but I'm made whole again by grace, not changed into something else. I'm reborn as if I'm given new life to become what I'm really meant to be, transformed to be more and more like Christ. We we may address this more in a future podcasts because um, there's a lot of, a lot. Lot, lot, lot that we could say about this, and where we put our emphasis, and where we, what we pay attention to, in ourselves, in the world around us, and 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 even what we pay attention to in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that should probably be left for another episode, and uh, we should probably wrap this one up here for today. So, thanks for listening. This is Joel. This is Travis. Have a great day.